Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project designed to share the latest learning about the rule of law, what it is, how it works, and how we can strengthen it. I'm Ted Pacone, Chief Engagement Officer for the World Justice Project, and I'll be your host for today's session. The topic for today's Rule of Law Talk is the current debates around human rights one of the eight factors measured in the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index. Specifically, we're asking, what ails the human rights movement today? And how should the international community respond? To help us answer those questions, we've invited Hurst Hannum, Professor of International Law at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He's also served as a visiting professor at the University of Hong Kong and Central European University in Budapest, and as counsel and advocate at various international human rights bodies and actively involved in numerous human rights NGOs. Professor Hanum has recently completed a thought-provoking book titled Rescuing Human Rights, a Radically Moderate Approach, published by Cambridge University Press. His book tackles the growing debate between those who feel the human rights discourse has strayed too far from its roots in international law and those who feel it could do much more to advance protection of vulnerable groups and redress other societal problems. Professor Hannum, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Ted. I'm delighted to be here. In a nutshell, tell us why you wrote this book now and help us set the context. Well, the book actually has had a very long gestation period. Uh, If one looks at human rights over the past few years, it's obvious that our major problem is political. The world has shifted to the right. It's become much more nationalistic. Uh, There's much less concern or credibility given to international approaches to almost anything. But I think the problems that human rights face today are of longer standing, and they come in some ways because of the success of human rights. They've become victims of that success. And just let me give you perhaps three of the broader ways in which I think human rights might have gone a bit astray. Um, The first is the exaggeration or the proliferation of rights from the original concept of a core of fundamental rights that apply to everyone in the world, no matter where they live, what society, what level of development, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We've moved to a much more detailed articulation of rights um, that identify certain kinds of people, kinds of identities, kinds of marginalization uh, that need to be addressed. And it ranges from the relatively wide non-discrimination with respect to women and with respect to race, for instance, to the much narrower migrant workers, the rights of the disabled. There now are proposals for rights on the rights of uh, treaties on the rights of older persons uh, and peasants. And that, I think, has muddied the human rights waters a bit, not in terms of the content of many of these new developments, but rather because we're losing the idea that human rights really is universal because most of these rights only apply to certain categories of people. Second problem is that we've discovered, and we shouldn't have been surprised at this, that it's very hard to change what governments do. And 
the only power that human rights advocates really have, whether they be governmental or, or others, is to persuade governments to change the way they act. This is a slow process, and it's very difficult. I think one of the results of this has been that we've looked for softer targets. Um, one of these soft targets, this is perhaps the best example, being business. We know that businesses, be they transnational or national, can cause a great deal of harm in the world. Um, and I have no argument with the notion that we need to find a way to hold them accountable. But instead of just holding them accountable for causing harm, we've attempted to attach them to human rights and to assign human rights responsibilities to them. Um, for human rights non-governmental organizations, this gives them a much easier target than governments, despite the fact that there are 70,000 of these corporations. Um, We've also tended to focus a lot on civil society uh, within countries. And it's absolutely true that civil society is, I suppose, both evidence of and essential to uh, democracy and open societies and, and real protection for human rights. But by ignoring governments, and I think both of these initiatives do that to a certain extent, we're ignoring the only entity in the world that can actually ensure human rights. Because human rights does accept the system we have in the world now, for better or worse, that there are sovereign states and their human rights obligations are primarily domestic and they need to change. And so we need to bring them back into that. On this last point, I think the issue here is enforcement of these rights and that states are maybe not complying with their obligations under international and national law. And so there are maybe attempts to get at the problem in other ways. There are other very powerful actors in the world with deep pockets, deep resources that are having these huge impacts. And the human rights discourse more broadly brings you a sense of um, principled moral values to the discussion, plus it gives you uh, advocates agency. It gives them an, an avenue to seek legal recourse, mm -hmm. whether that's against the state or against uh, a business. How do you help me understand why you think the human rights discourse is not the better way than, say, working through democratic uh, compromise? I think to stick on the topic of business, because it is a very popular topic these days, Number one, businesses aren't accountable to anyone. Um, except their shareholders. Except their shareholders. And I don't, I'm not going to trust business <laughs> to protect my human rights. The human rights efforts so far have assigned to business the responsibility, not the legal obligation, but the voluntary, optional, moral responsibility of respecting all human rights. If I'm a businessman, I just don't know what that means. And finally, Again, I come back to governments. What can control business is government, either the government where the business is incorporated or the government um, that's in charge of the territory where the business is doing its business. There is a new treaty that's been proposed that's been talked about for four or five years on business and human rights that the UN is likely to accept, I think, sometime over the next two or three years. It doesn't impose any obligations whatsoever on business. It just encourages governments to do what governments already have the power to do. 
And so if all the energy that's been expended in Geneva on this treaty had been expended within the United States or the EU or Japan or other places on trying to get them to adopt controls on business that are within their power, I think we would have achieved much more. Yeah. As one specific example, we have a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the U.S., which has been reasonably effective and because it prevents U.S. businesses from engaging in corruption in other countries, and I think it's been, it's been a help. But that's where the focus needs to be. We also want business to do more than just protect human rights. We want them to be good citizens. We want them to donate to charitable causes. We want them to pay wages that are above the minimum wage that is set by the, by the uh, country. And so I think on the one hand, human rights doesn't help, and on the other hand, it's, it's really too narrow. Well, of course, states want to, uh, they're almost racing to deregulate various uh, sectors and business, attract foreign investment, so you have that dynamic. Um, but also, at the, a contrary dynamic is that businesses want to project uh, a good image in the world. They, they care about their reputation as a real monetary value of their brand. And so that's an opportunity, I think, for the human rights community to say, okay, you claim to be caring about the community in which you work. What are you actually doing to protect rights in your, or what are you doing to do no harm? Is it basic question? If you think about the way extractive industries operate in Latin America or elsewhere in the world, and the question of indigenous rights and the claim and for advance notice of these mining uh, projects before they destroy their indigenous lands. Are you suggesting that's not a human rights issue? We're conflating this and it's only getting more confused? And if it's not a human rights issue, how should those who care about the environment deal with it? Well, it's a human rights issue if the government within whose territory these harms are occurring does nothing to prevent those harms. The government should do that by making sure that the company is liable in the same way it's liable for any other harms it's caused that have nothing to do with human rights. If a company's truck runs over someone and kills that person, the company should be liable. Certainly the most sympathetic and attractive target are is precisely extractive industries, particularly where they have an impact on indigenous rights. And there are some possibilities of holding specific companies accountable because there are relatively few large companies around the world that are able to do this kind of work. But most businesses don't have brand names. Of the 70,000 transnational companies in the world, what, 500, 1,000? You may be able to go after in the way you suggest, which relies on reputation. It's a bit like a consumer boycott. Most of what we use, what we see, what we buy, is created by businesses that we've never heard of and never will heard of. And so targeting them, 70,000 of them as opposed to 200 governments, seems to me not to be very likely to occur. Well, let's um, talk about, we've talked a little bit about your diagnosis of the problem. Let's talk about how you would remedy it. Um, your title of the book is A Radically Moderate Approach. Um, let's hear more about that. I mean, you argue we should stick to universal standards that are contained in international treaties and other legal instruments and make the most of them, mm -hmm. that they already contain 
really the essence of what we need to advance, for example, non-discrimination against vulnerable communities. We don't need a separate treaty for that vulnerable community. Um, but if you think about the way history has evolved, um, many, many rights that we recognize now were not recognized as universal. It took fighting and grievance and agency uh, and advocacy by those aggrieved groups to really get to the point where their rights were, were recognized. So how do you square that circle? Well, it's actually relatively easy. Um, I, knew, I use law as the touchstone, the touchstone for a couple of reasons. The first is simply that if we're trying to define human rights not the way they should be, but what they are, that's where we have to look. That's where we find the definition. Um, every country is th in the world has agreed as part of the UN process to have a peer review of its human rights practices. Those are based on the two major UN treaties and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights adopted in 1948. Because of that, not only can we find out what those human rights are, but governments have already committed themselves to some degree uh, to comply with those instruments. Hypocrisy is a wonderful weapon for the human rights community and, and we should use it more, more successfully. It's also important to understand though that human rights were not handed down on a golden tablet by anyone. They are going to change. They can change, they should change. And I think in many instances, the sort of political activity that you mentioned uh, has occurred and is absolutely essential. One, in drawing attention to marginalized groups, let's say, or particular issues that might be included in human rights but have been ignored. And that's certainly legitimate. And there may well be uh, new kinds of rights that we need to develop if we look at the whole area of technology, communication, social media, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, we have human rights of privacy. We have human rights of freedom of expression. And we have human rights to property. How do we put all those things together? And that's going to take a, 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 lot, of, a lot of new thought. I think the radical, radically moderate approach, in a sense, is simply one that calls for us to recognize the limitations as well as the potential of human rights not to see human rights and international law generally as a panacea that can solve all the world's problems. Um, for instance, human rights advocates and human rights institutions have already recognized that a degraded environment might be, recognized, might be relevant to the human right to health, which is in the treaties, and the human right to life. And countries have been called on the carpet for violating, violating those rights by not protecting people from the environment. But if we're going to do anything about the environmental crisis in this world, it's not going to be done by individual states responding to their human rights violations domestically. And human rights don't tell us how to do it. Or perhaps it's a piece of the puzzle. Like it's a multi-pronged strategy that we need and there needs to be rights-based litigation. But yes, of course, there needs to be shareholder resolutions and there needs to be all kinds of other political pressure and economic pressure to uh, get that problem under control. Let's, um, it, how would this radically moderate approach apply to an area that you write about in the book, uh, a chapter uh, that you refer to as, as sex rights, issues of uh, gender, women's rights, sexual orientation. Um, we've seen over decades, but even very recently, remarkable progress in some societies on these fronts. 
using a human rights rubric, mainly non-discrimination uh, and protection of certain minorities from violence. Um, but you suggest that maybe this is not ripe for um, consensus because if you look around the world, some societies are just not prepared mm -hmm. to take that on. Say a bit more about that. Well, I think that this issue and sex rights, I hope, doesn't offend anyone. It seemed to be the best uh, way to describe the whole panoply of rights that we're talking about. Sex rights are both an example of the successes and the progressive nature of human rights, as well as of their limitations. The words that appear in, in all the treaties uh, are similar to the words that our infamous um, Commission on Unalienable Rights is dealing with. It talks about discrimination based on sex. And initially, that was about women. There's not a treaty about non-discrimination based on sex. It's about women. International human rights bodies from the very beginning have looked at those words from since the 1970s and said, oh, well, yeah, it just says sex. And they've looked very narrowly in one respect. It says that marriage between a man and a woman is a human right. So they haven't said anything about, most of them, uh, gay marriage. But they've looked at the word sex and said, well, of course this applies to people with different sexual orientations. And so they've upheld the rights of gays to exist, not to have their activity criminalized, not to be discriminated against. The same has been true for transsexuals from very early on. And in Europe, the European Court of Human Rights initially recognized, well, yes, of course there's a right to have your identity papers changed to reflect your new sex. But no, you can't change your birth certificate because that was the fact at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, 20 years later, they reversed themselves and said, well, yes, I mean, if, if this was just sort of a mistake, then it's all right to change that. Very different from those two categories, um, women and people defined by their sexual orientation. I mean, homosexuals and transsexuals still identify themselves, most of them, as men or women. I mean, they may engage in very different sexual practices and have all sorts of differences. Gender doesn't enjoy any consensus whatsoever in the world. I think even within the developed world, uh, we still have feminists who don't understand how gender has morphed from being a socially constructed way of assigning roles to men and women back in the 1960s and 70s to something that can be a fundamental and apparently immutable aspect of your identity. And fluid at the same time. And fluid at the same time. Facebook has recognized uh, some 70 different kinds of gender identities that, that they allow to be used. That's so far from any kind of universal consensus that it may be something that develops into a human right. But I guess what I would argue against is the pretense that some advocates make uh, in saying that, well, this is really nothing new. We're just expanding what the treaties already say, because I think in this case, it's not true. It would be very easy to make the case for protecting other gendered people from any sort of violence. And even the most conservative regions of the world, Asia and Africa, have agreed to do that. They don't accept that there is such a thing as gender identity, but they'll protect people 
who are attacked because they're thought to be of a different gender identity. Yes. I think one could make the same argument for non-discrimination. Mm. Whatever this person calls himself or herself, or however they describe themselves, that shouldn't be a cause for discrimination in jobs or education mm. or government. Yeah. Taking the next step for recognition of whatever it is that you're calling yourself, whoever it is that you're calling yourself, when many societies simply don't understand the concept may never arise to the level of a, of a right, but it can certainly be and should be a matter of political, social, particularly, uh, contestation within mm. societies. Yeah. Well, that seems where many rights start, is that process of contestation. And over time, there might be a point of consensus within a society, and both at the national level and at the international level. And that has been the story of the evolution of the international human rights system. And so I want to talk about this in a meta level. Um, you know, your, your book, you talk about how um, international law allows states to implement certain universal rights in flexible ways um, that reflect that we live in a world of very diverse societies and different types of regimes. Uh, so for example, the right to housing. Some societies just may not have the resources to provide housing to all those who need it. But at the same time, there's a tension with the rise of, particularly lately, of national sovereignty as a, a check on human rights norms um, that states can kind of pick and choose. Well, we like this one, but we don't like this one. It doesn't fit with our national or cultural tradition. And that's precisely the problem, because it is those leaders who have um, considered themselves above or beyond uh, the reach of international law that has been decided um, through treaties or customary international law. So can you say a bit about that tension? Well, there, there is a tension, but I think it's a necessary one. And we should begin by saying that if we can't stop leaders from doing what they're doing in Yemen and Syria and Myanmar and China and being aided by people like our current president, um, another human rights treaty isn't going to help. And so human rights were not designed to stop wars and to prevent genocide. Those are terrible things. But They were designed to regulate them, though. No, they were designed to, to the, the Convention Against Genocide was designed, designed to punish individual individuals who commit genocide. That's all. And that's all. That's a lot, and we haven't managed to do it. Uh, what's happening in Syria is not, yes, they may constitute human rights violations, but it's mass murder. There are crimes against humanity, war crimes. We have a whole other body of law to deal with that. So I think human rights simply are different from those particular kinds of law. But the real crux of the question is, is when you mentioned the word um, universality and, and flexibility. If you actually read the treaties, and that's one reason why I keep coming back to law, and even um, Article 29, I think it is, the, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, too often, and, and I do this all the time too, when we think of rights, it's just there's freedom of speech, or there's a right to housing, or a right to health. What we don't understand, and this is built into the core of human rights, is that these rights are not absolute. You don't have a right to all kinds of health care. You don't have a right to say anything you want or to hold any sort of demonstration anywhere. There are legitimate 
reasons that these rights can be limited. And we're not about the leaders that you're talking about, but leaders acting in good faith. There are larger societal issues. Who decides whether in a country with limited resources, it's education or housing or healthcare that you will promote first? It's not a human rights decision. That's a political decision, an economic decision, and human rights help create the context for those decisions to be taken in a, in a fair way. So that flexibility is an essential part of human rights. It was never the goal of human rights to make every society look the same. The question is, as, as you say, and you're absolutely right, that these legitimate limitations on rights are frequently uh, abused by leaders who just want to do with whatever they want to do. One of the legitimate exceptions is for national security. Now, that's been abused by almost everyone, and particularly since the war on terror, it's one that we have to be extremely suspicious about. But I don't think anyone would deny that there are some instances where national security concerns would allow you to limit some sorts of speech, for instance, mm -hmm. or some sorts of privacy rights. Unfortunately, there isn't really a way of enforcing human rights. Uh, you mentioned that word earlier, and I wanted to come back to it. Recall that all these laws are, are written by states, and they're not keen on giving real power to international institutions. And so the best that the human rights systems can do is to supervise compliance or monitor compliance with the obligations that states have accepted. Mm. Even in the regions where there are real courts with the ability to, to issue judgments, they don't have police forces. Uh, and it ends up being up to political bodies to pressure the states or public opinion, or at the very least, the ability to support human rights advocates within countries, whether they're advocates for economic rights or political rights or social rights, in bringing about the changes that ultimately do have to be domestic in their nature and not well, international. I think that's the key point here is the distinction between international and domestic. It's true at the international level enforcement is very difficult. It basically doesn't exist except perhaps depending on how states would view the European Court of Human Rights judgments. But even in the inter-American system you have most states um, accepting jurisdiction of that court in their decisions and under constitutional law in their own countries they have agreed to implement that as a matter of domestic law so there's an interesting discussion we can have on the boundaries between international and domestic law but these are in most cases legal rights that have been even the Chinese constitution recognizes freedom of speech but it's a whole different matter in terms of how the system works and I, I want to turn uh, to the United States, where we sit, including where we are in Washington right now, um, the U.S. State Department has recently appointed a new commission, which you referenced earlier, on unalienable rights, charged with providing, quote, fresh thinking about human rights discourse that has departed from our nation's founding principles of natural law and natural rights, end quote. Not surprisingly, this initiative has provoked some controversy. Um, human rights advocates are concerned that it will somehow circumvent existing human rights laws and undermine protections uh, in particular on LGBT rights and reproductive rights. 
give us your sense of, of what is the purpose of this commission? What are they talking about when they're talking about natural law and rights? Well, most of our discussion uh, has been filled with me criticizing what's going on in human rights because I do think they're worth rescuing, uh, and I think that we need to do something to make sure that happens. On this issue, I'm pleased to join with uh, almost all of my human rights colleagues who do see this particular commission as an excuse to pursue a religiously oriented conservative viewpoint of society. Now, I don't object to people who hold those viewpoints. What I do object to uh, is the presumption that they can therefore limit the rights of other people to take actions which they may, with which they may, may disagree. I mean, like abortion, for instance. But so I, I do think it's correct to interpret this commission, which I suspect will die a death with a slow whimper uh, as soon as President Trump leaves office, well, and President Pence. After that happens, I hope it will be forgotten, but I'm sure that its intention is to limit the scope of human rights, which Americans have always been somewhat ambivalent about anyway. Um, it will not be a good thing. Natural law has generally been an excuse for religious law. And it's again why, I mean, we have ratified some serious human rights conventions that will no doubt contradict what I expect the commission's recommendations will be. And in that situation, I hope that you will join me in defining human rights as law as opposed to what results from political and social processes which may violate that well, law. Well, as you, re <laughs> as you said earlier, so much of human rights is a matter of political contestation. That's what we're seeing play out here. There is a constituency in the United States and in other countries for this kind of more religious approach to, to human rights, and we're going to have uh, to continue to have that debate in political arenas as well as in the courts uh, where that is possible. Um, we didn't get to the whole question of the U.S. Uh, not ratifying certain treaties like rights of the child, the only country in the world that has not ratified the treaty, or economic and social rights. We talk about right to health, right to housing. Those rights, frankly, are not recognized in our system. Um, but it's interesting to see such a lively political debate in our uh, presidential campaign trail on the right to health. Uh, so I think this is um, not unique to the United States, but we are a bit behind in this front. No, I, I agree, and, and since in some respects my approach could be seen as fairly conservative in the sense of looking at rights as they are, I do want to make it clear that those rights include economic, social, and cultural rights, which are not controversial in almost any other country in the world except this one. And so if a country is to accept what the rights around which there is consensus, that certainly goes far beyond what the American people have accepted thus far because of our unique and in that respect, in my view, rather unfortunate history. Well, we want to thank Professor Hannum uh, for joining us today and thank our listeners for taking the time uh, to hear us. Um, to hear more, watch the debate on Professor Hannum's book that we are uh, sponsoring with the American Society of International Law on October 31st. Visit our website at worldjusticeproject.org to view the video or to find a link to Hearst Hannum's new book on rescuing human rights. This is Ted Bacone signing off for the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Talk podcast series.